Hey everybody, this is Crystal Marks, the Executive Director of Seattle Pride. I want to let you know Pride is virtual this year. It is still happening June 26th to 28th. Register for free at togetherforpride.org. We are focusing on our BIPOC, our Black, Brown, Indigenous community members. We want to make sure we see you there. I'm Mariangela Abeo, and this is Virtual Pride on the Face to Faces podcast. While pride is amazing with all the glitter, libations, and celebrations, the real pride is striving to live our truths and fighting for equality, education, and inclusion whenever and wherever we go, starting right here in our personal spaces with how we celebrate ourselves and take care of our community. I'm hoping that this month we give you content to help remind you that though this year's pride may be quiet in your neighborhood bars, clubs, and sidewalks, there is an incredible community of humans ready to celebrate you. And no matter who you talk to, there will always be someone who can connect to your journey. Though we're physically separate this year, no one can take the connection that our pride gives us to each other. Now, let's lean in and celebrate. Today, I'm so honored to welcome Scott Turner Schofield to Virtual Pride Month. Scott is an award-winning actor and was even just recently nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award, first Daytime Emmy to a trans male actor in his performance for Studio City. He is a writer, a producer, a TEDx speaker. He was the first openly transgender actor in daytime television with a reoccurring role on CBS's The Bold and the Beautiful and consults for HBO's Euphoria. His three one-man shows have toured major venues in the U.S. and Europe. Scott has educated hundreds of crew members in on-set sensitivity, vetted trans-affirmative policy for the union, and is an active gender diversity trainer. I was specifically drawn to his work in the mental health arena, speaking on how the transgender journey and experience can be navigated by both the community and ourselves in a world that is currently learning to navigate and respect the trans experience. And he is at the forefront in fighting for transgender liberation and inclusion. Welcome, Scott. Wow, thank you. That's a very awesome intro. (laughs) You're a very awesome human. I'm super excited to have you. Well, first of all, I want to check in because I like to do emotional check-ins with people. And we are in this very crazy time in our world, both quarantine with social unrest, race, everything, all of the stuff happening, um, especially in the last few days. Um, How are you today? I got to say today's rough. Um, You know, we are just yesterday, we had the riots in Minnesota and Minneapolis um, that come from very real reasons, um, the police brutality that's been going on. And, you know, also learning about Tony McDade uh, was is particularly heartbreaking. Um, Tony McDade was a black trans man in Tallahassee, Florida, who was being transphobically attacked and in self-defense used a weapon against his attackers, uh, was then killed by the police and um, was then misgendered all through the media. All through the media. And that was just, it was just a hurtful, horrible thing on top of a hurtful, horrible. Horrible. You know, to just see that and to be someone who, you know, my family is multiracial, my life is 
multiracial, right? Like it's like, it, this is, and, and to feel so powerless to comfort people, like that there's no comfort to be had right now. It, it uh, I'm really working on that, right? Mm. To, to figure out how can I be there for people when it's hard to actually physically be there for people, right? And how can I use my privilege at a time when, uh, you know, for as much as I get to walk around like this, uh, I don't have any jobs. You know, I got a I got a daytime Emmy nomination, but my industry is over right now. Right, right. Um, so, you know, at a t- how do you use privilege for good when you feel very powerless? You know, and these are great questions to ask. So, you know, here we are. But thanks for asking. It's, uh, yeah. I think it's really important that we, you know, we have to center what's real right now, you know, like what's really happening and be in that reality so that then I think when we talk about the rest of things that are good, like the fact that you're doing this, right, anything great that's going on for me, right, it, it, it helps us with gratitude, which is a helpful mental health practice, right? right. Yeah, I think um, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think so many of us are, you know, th- there are people, I think Amanda Seals said it best, there are white people and then there are people who happen to be white. And I think people who happen to be white, we are allies. We are, are trying our best to use our privilege and our stance and our voices to be that uh, change because uh, so many white people that don't get it, that are not educated, that are causing the problems will only listen to other white people. So I think that... Um, yeah, there's a, there's a long laundry list of things that we should, can, and hopefully are doing. Yeah. And just have to figure out how, right? Because it's it's unprecedented, you know, and that's the, you know, and that's, that's the thing every day is, you know, I think a lot about the work that transphobia tries to do in my life, right? Uh, my own dysphoria that is, personal right psychological but also like the world is dysphoric and so the devaluing of my trans life right of my efforts in this world the idea that i'm not doing enough i always have to remember that's transphobia talking right if i'm figuring out how to do something very hard at a very hard time that's enough right and and it's you know we're not called to finish the work we're called to do the work that's it you know yeah i think uh you know t Cooper and I were talking about this the other day that I think the, the trans journey is is very often only highlighted, looked at, and respected when it's hard, difficult, dramatic, horrible, and then other people expect themselves, other people on their own trans and gender journeys are they they quantify their own journey by by those standards, and I think that that's super yeah. harmful. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. I um. I created a speech recently for a group of mental health practitioners who work with trans youth uh, who are in recovery. And I, because I worked on euphoria, I titled the speech dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And it was a long process of me coming to understand the way that dysphoria is working in my life and that it's not just me who's dysphoric. It's actually the world is dysphoric and it enacts that dysphoric pressure on you you know, and I'm of the opinion that trans people are born trans people don't understand the science, but like I was born a trans person and I know plenty of people who were right. And so we know that even if we don't have the words, you know, or the awareness of it and the world, excuse me, and the world knows that too. So when the world enacts its dysphoria upon us, which 
sets us up to go through all of the dramas and traumas, right? And we, we're starting, like, the science is starting to figure this out, right? That, that trans people are much more likely to experience all kinds of abuse. And that that's, th- there's this thing that I'm sort of trying, I feel like a mime, you know, like I'm trying to, to figure out this invisible wall that's there, this invisible force. And so that's what that speech was. But at the same time, you know, to sit there listing all of the horrible things that have happened, right, was was difficult. And I had to just remember that the reason I was doing it was to share with mental health professionals who need to learn how to treat dysphoria and how not to make us just objects, right? Mm -hmm. But that who are people who are being enacted upon by the force of the world's dysphoria on us, right? The world has gender dysphoria, it's transphobic, right? And they put that on us, you know? And so I, you know, that's what it's about. But the more that that, that, that speech gets seen, you know, I, I worry that, it, that it, the context will be lost and that people will think, you know, that it's just more trans trauma porn. Yeah. I mean, and well, I think that you're, you're bringing up such a great point that it's such a bigger picture than just focusing on the trans trauma, because I think that this dysphoria, this necessary or necessary binary of of the world is so interesting when we take a step back and look at why we're doing it why it was put in place in the first place and what it's serving to us currently i have a a friend that used to tell me that like the anxiety that they're feeling in public isn't seen by their cis friends because they're not understanding when they look at people and watch people try to gender them, it's, it's, it create, they're the only person that feels it basically. And that other person doesn't see it as a problem. And that's that dysphoric kind of thought process that you're kind of hitting the nail on the head there. So I think it sounds like a brilliant talk. I'd love to hear it and push it around. Sure. I'll I'll send it your way. Yeah. We'll put the link in the bio. Yeah. Okay. Well, and you know, I'm reminded too, um, my business partner is black and a long time ago when we were first starting out, she said to me, she looked across the table, I'll never forget it. And she said, you know, when you and I go on a walk, I look around and I see at least 10 things that are racist and you just walk on by like you don't even see it. And it was this moment, you know, and it, it was said in this, you know, we're, we're partners, you know, so right, right. it was said in this way where I just was stunned in that way to, to realize for as much as I work at being a conscious and aware person, for as much as I actually like have spent all of my life because I, my family's interracial, you know? So it's like, I've, I've spent all my life being aware and, and working for justice on that side that I still can't see it. Right. And to think about exactly your point where people don't see what it does to us when we're dealing with other people dealing with us and what matters is that they believe us. Right. Right. When I say I'm having a really hard time today, you know, because, you know, of dealing with people dealing with me and that's something that I just have to move through every day. And with even with all of this privilege, right, like it's still a drag. You know what I mean? It still bothers me. You know, the people who say, oh, don't worry about it. You know, oh, how are you? Aren't you being kind of a drama queen about that? Like or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. People say, I'm sorry, that's terrible and I'm here to do whatever I can to help you. And I feel like with this police violence, you know, against black people, it's like 
you know, the people who are saying, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, look at these statistics. Oh, oh, oh. and it's like, shut up. Believe these people, you know, and then we take it to women, believe, right? Like we take it to survivors of sexual assault, like believe people, you know, just so it's so interesting how, how, you know, I can, I can empathize with people who are very, very different from me based on that one place of the pain that it is to not be believed for something that harms you so deeply as a person. And that I can rest on that and say, I'm here for you, whatever you're going to, you know, I, I believe you, I believe your pain right? and to know what that power can be. Yeah. I think that that's something that, um, so many of us just want to be seen and heard and not gaslit and not, um, misunderstood or not, uh, not, not believed, like you said. And I think that brings so much to our mental health. And I find that just in this circle that I work in is that, you know, I, w- I was just telling somebody over half of my applicants for faces of fortitude, and I have a vetting process and based on my travel over half are transgender, but mm. only probably 10% of those get in front of my camera because they're mm. fearful. They're scared. They're not ready to tell their story. Their families aren't ready. They're worried about the re- repercussions, you know, from the community. And um, that in itself is, is such, it shows us just when we think we're at a good place, it shows us where we are still. Yeah. So on in, in this, I mean, we've all been in quarantine since like mid to early March now. I'm yeah. losing days and time and all of that at this point. Um, you know, I know it's hard to find a silver lining. And we were talking about this a little bit in the pre-show, in our little pre-funk. But um, what has been your silver lining? I know a lot of people are finding that they can do a lot more with a lot less. We're connecting with people we wouldn't usually. I'm a FaceTimer. I was never a FaceTimer before. So mm-hmm. what are, are you finding anything that's helping you? I mean, just this, just the simple fact that literally everyone I talk to in every conversation I have with another human, which are fewer and far between now, right? The words silver lining come mm-hmm. up, right? The fact that everybody is thinking about this, which says to me that there's this human need to think about you know, to not do black and white thinking, to not do those, you know, cognitive, uh, what do you call it? It's a mental health word, cognitive distortions, right? Yes. That everything's all good or all bad, right? That, or focusing on the negative, right? That we, that, that it's just a very natural human reaction to say, well, you know, the silver lining of this is, and then fill in the blank and everybody's got one, at mm-hmm. least one, right? I Many. I, yeah, it's, this is, the weirdest time. Is it not the weirdest time? I mean, I lived through 9-11, right? And I remember I remember feeling everything changing in that moment. And actually T. Cooper's, you know, it was so interesting. I was talking with one of T. Cooper's kids about it, you know, and she was just really down and not knowing what to do. And she was the age that I was when 9-11 happened. And I said, you know, that happened and it, it felt like the world was never going to be the same again. And everybody talked about how the world was never going to be the same again. And as a young person with my whole life ahead of me, that was really, really difficult to hear. Like, what does that even mean? And at the same time, now in the, what, almost, you know, 19 years since that happened, you know, I met T and T met your mom and I met you and I got married and, you know, all these wonderful things have happened in this world that was never going to be the same and was supposed to be all terrible. So we have to, you know, remember that. Yeah. There's, there's a commercial that's that's circulating right now of, of a pretty old woman in her eighties that survived 
the the last pandemic and mm. was, well she was born during it and it was and it, it's she's like we can survive this we can do this and she had a message to all the moms having children that are scared bringing their kids and as a as a parent i was just like <gasps> sobbing yeah. because it's it's that little thread of hope that we all need that we're going to survive this because it's fucking scary. Yeah. It's it so scary. You know, I know you work in the entertainment field and um, I've spoken to several people that work in that industry and it's, it's kind of a scary uh, future, you know, we, writers tables, you know, T was talking about not being able to get together with all the writers and, you know, crews of 150. I'm sure Bold and the Beautiful has a huge crew of people. You know, what's the future? Are people talking about it? Is there anything happening? Well, that's it. That's, that's what's so scary is just that it's absolutely unknown. Mm. It's just unknown. We do not know. People have floated ideas. Tyler Perry was one of the first, and it's so interesting. You know, he's got this sort of compound of studios that have actual houses on them because that's where he films. And right. he's like, "We're going to bring everybody in. We're all going to be together for two weeks. We're going to quarantine together, and then we're going to work." You know, um, right? Like, who saw that coming? There, there. People again are being so creative and trying to work things out and trying to work things out in a way that will take care of people. Right. You know, the, I think, you know, one of the things that happened right when this started was I was having a really good year. Like I was on euphoria season two, we were, we were supposed to start shooting the day that California went into lockdown. Um, you know, I was consulting on like legendary, which comes out on HBO max like today, I think, you know, I got uh, to no, I've watched both episodes. It's incredible. <laughs> okay. It right. Came out yesterday. The experience of working with them was unbelievable. Like, like sitting in front of this crew of like a hundred plus people and, and like really people wanting to know exactly how to keep people safe, you know, so that everyone could bring their whole selves to this and just shine and be creative. Like the depth of feeling that went into that was, you know, unparalleled, except that I was also working on we're here where they cared about the same thing. And you know what I mean? And uh, the craft and you know what I mean? There were just, I was working on all of these things that, you know, it was a great start to the year, right? I got to go to Sundance. I, I was in a film that premiered there. Like it was like the biggest year. And then it was like, poof. and I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, you know, I got so into my privilege and my, you know, everything that I've worked so hard to build for myself. And I forgot how totally vulnerable I am. And I'm just so sick of being so vulnerable. And that's me, this like total privilege guy, right? Like saying that, you know, mm -hmm. so that feeling that we're all feeling to very different degrees, right? Of, of the vulnerability that we're all experiencing. I hope that Hollywood and every other industry will build into itself a way to make people less vulnerable. Universal healthcare, just to start with, you know what I mean? Right. That would be magic. But yeah, it's all of these things are coming to light now and coming to the surface because of all of this that we're realizing are would help everyone and would make people more safe and would make people feel safe. I mean, uh, you know, I'm on the other side of the entertainment world where I worked in the music industry as a producer for years. And, um, you know, our, my daughter is a dancer and, and, 
you know, she performs in front of thousands of people. When will that happen again? And so it's just this kind of, but I'm watching them do live streaming of performances that I would have never been able to watch from my couch in, in pajamas. And like, I, I was what there was a freaking lesbian strip show from LA and I was fucking thrilled. I was like, yes. And I'm going to, I'm going to fucking tip you and I'm here for this and I can't go to LA, but I can, you know what I mean? And so it's like, people are, people are changing how they think. And if this is going to make things more accessible for people in the future that may struggle, I think that that is such a great thing for the entertainment world. 100%. So I think, um, I hope that we can see some magic come out of these studios and these places. I love that Tyler Perry started the ball rolling on that. That's kind of magic. <laughs> oh, and not surprising. I forgive him for Medea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, almost just like this much. Well, I, I would love to hear a, more about, um, you know, your work in the gender diversity training and the mental health um, spectrum, because I think that that, you know, of course, that's where I work and am centered. But I think that there's something very important around how society treats the queer and trans experience and how we can help as under this queer you know, LGBTQ plus umbrella, how can we help teach people, train people, help the mental health experience and level it up? Because right now, you know, just like we tell this community, black people are not responsible for educating you. Trans people are not responsible for educating you and so on. And, you know, there's got to be, um, your work is just very important. So I'd love you to tell a little bit more about it and then maybe talk about how we can level up a little bit. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I got into it very naturally. Uh, I was in college and transitioning and I was, I know that I wasn't the only one even at the time, right? But I, I was among the first of, of the folks who were, you know, actively and out transitioning at college. And to my credit, Emory University is where I went to school in Atlanta. And to their credit, you know, this this private school in the South was like, how do we do this right? Can you please help us? And we, you know, we gave them some, some, you know, tips and tools. We were looking to other schools that were already doing that in terms of dorms and medical care and other things like that. Um, and they listened and they created, you know, one of the, they used their privilege to create one of the top of the line experiences that a trans person can have going into a school like that. Um, and without question, you know, and my experience, I was so lucky, you know, and again, privilege, right? Like, but, but that it didn't, it, it could have very easily not happened that way at that time and in that place. And people would have just said, well, what did you expect? Right? Like, so the fact that it did happen um, leveled me up, right? So I had that experience. And so I said, I can do this at other schools. And I was going around doing my one man show. I was getting brought in by other students who were who I knew or who were in that sort of network. Right. And uh, I would go give my talks as a way really to build audiences for the show, right? Because at the time, I think about it in the early 2000s, people like not, you know, people sort of thinking like, what is transgender? Like if you think about everything that we don't know now, think about everything we didn't know then. And right. I was going to places like Laramie, Wyoming, Charlottesville, Virginia, Tampa, Florida, right? Like San Antonio, Texas. Like I was not in New York, San Francisco, Seattle, right? Like I wasn't in those places. Um, and 
And that leveled up again. I went from doing class talks to then talking to the administration, found myself helping along with the activists who were working in the, in the places, right? I got to use all this privilege and go sit in front of the boards of trustees and explain to them, uh, you know, exactly why they, gender identity should be separate from sexual orientation in non-discrimination clauses. And literally people would say, you remind me of my grandson. <laughs> and pass the thing, you know what I mean? And change it, right? Um, and then when all of those students who were bringing me to their schools graduated and started working, uh, I started getting invited to corporations and I started learning, you know, for, look, we can talk about corporations, right? It's a whole thing. And while corporations are not people, corporations are made of people. And those people who are starting to work at corporations are starting to expect the same protections the same equal treatment that they're getting at their universities. So then I'm coming in and I'm working on policy with like UPS Global, right? And it was very much sort of, you know, again, I was very early in, you know, this was a long time ago. This was even a long time ago, just for as much as time has sped up too, right? right? But we're talking, you know, 2014, right? We're talking 13, 14 when, when I'm starting to work in corporations doing what is now a very robust industry of diversity, diversity and inclusion work. So I'm just giving the talks, right? I'm just doing that. I'm basically doing the same speech over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the mental health world was always, it kind of always had to be a part of that because I had to represent the toll that transphobia and what I now say the world's dysphoria takes on trans people, how it's harder for us to get up in the morning. It's harder for us to get dressed, to go to work. It's hard to be at, harder for us to be at work with, you know, everybody misgendering us, right? Like that, it actually takes a toll on our mental health, right? And I was just always very transparent about talking about that with people because there's nothing, there's no shame in it, you know? And anyway, what did I have to lose, right, by talking about it? And, you know, it's just now that, I mean, I, I had to teach my therapist how to how to be cool for me, you know? Yeah. Um, which was really interesting because when we were working together in the early 2000s around my transition, we worked together for a long period of time and they helped me do, you know, help me get my letter because you had to get a letter back then saying that you had gender identity disorder and all these things. And um, and then I went back to work with them several years later, like almost a decade later. And they were like, my partner transitioned and I would not have known what to do were it not for you and our work together, if you can imagine, right? So I do think while... It should never have been my responsibility to train a mental health professional in mental, you know, in, in my own mental health. Like, you know, I was capable of doing that and I did it to the best of my abilities and they took it and ran with it, right? You, you, you offer what you have. I think the biggest thing that we as a, as a, you know, if I'm thinking about your audience here that we really need to consider is the friendly fire that we do on each other. For the people who are out there, who are putting themselves out there, who are doing the work, right, who are humans and may not always have looked at all of their stuff or be perfect or be saying it perfectly, right, but they are doing it. I think those who aren't doing it, you know, or who think that they're doing it from behind their keyboards on Facebook or whatever, right, need to take a seat. 
Mm. Okay. If you're not doing it, like the calling in and offering experience, right, is, is important. And that helps us all grow, right? They're totally fine to do. But this call out culture that I guess as a silver lining of all of this seems to have kind of gone away, you know. Right. You know, I was, I, I have such a love hate relationship with call out culture because I feel like, um, as, as an ally, as uh, meaning an ally, as far as racism and as, uh, you know, a queer, I feel like it's my responsibility to call people out, use my voice, but at the same time under the queer umbrella and in the trans world as well, you know, there is a call out culture that happens still. And it's, um, I, I think it was somebody recently was just telling me that, you know, to see people in the queer and transgender spectrum falling into society's old binaries once again and trying to put each other into boxes is so sad. And it, it really is. And I, I recently had um, someone tell me that I, I, I was responding to a horrible thing that had happened to a trans person. And I said, um, that breaks my heart. And this trans person looked at me and said, I can't handle your heartbreaking and mine. And I was like, that's really, it's very real because it's like, it's not my response. It's not their responsibility to handle my heartbreak. I need to take that and take action and teach myself and learn and do better and make sure that whatever mistake was made or whatever crime was done to this person, um, that I'm never part of that, 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 um, wrong, you know, um, we can all be heartbroken, but it's, it's how you talk about it, I guess. Right. I think there's a realness to that. That's like conscious communication to say, I can't handle your heartbreak, but to say you're effed up for having heartbreak when this person is going, you know what I mean? Like there's a different, it's like, where are you coming at that from? Right. So I can hear that, you know, and as though, though that makes me sad because as a community, it's like, if I can't be in my community, having my heart broken with my community and all of us supporting each other in our like communal heartbreak around the injustices, right, that we that we all experience, then where else, like, like where else is that going to happen on the one hand, right? But the way that that was said was responsible. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when people are not aware that they are taking out their dysphoria on everybody else, their internalized transphobia, the transphobia that says you're not good enough. And so you turn around and you say, nobody is good enough. Even the people who are doing good work, right? Good work, not perfect work. And we have to be reminded, right? Perfectionism is white supremacy in practice. Yes. Yes. And it's definitely transphobia in practice, right? It's all of those things. So, you know, I'm I'm saying like the, I have noticed that like nobody's doing that right now, at least not anywhere that I'm looking. We're taking care of each other. We're being responsible and good to each other. And long may that continue because it had really gotten to an unsustainable point. It had gotten to the point where as someone who's been, you know, I could have taken all of this privilege. I could have gone into the world for myself. I could have, I could be like a one percenter at a bank right now. I could have blazed that trail all for myself. And instead I took my privilege and I've been broke for my entire adult life (laughs) being a professional queer. Okay. A professionally trans person working in that world for my community with my community. Right. Right. And to, for me to feel afraid of what my community is going to say when I know that I'm coming at it with, a lot of knowledge, right? With a lot of sensitivity, with a lot of care, 
right? That that was some, that's something I'm glad to leave in the past, and I hope it stays in the past. You know? Yeah, that's real. I I you know I I've been struggling with my own kind of gender since a child growing up as you know, Roman Catholic, Italian, 100% Italian, you are only pretty in a dress and, you know, with with makeup on and so that masculine side. And and I was always questioned as if in the community is where, what's your gender? Where do you stand? You're mm-hmm. not quite, um, you know, you're not non-binary, but you're not this, you're not that. And it was so, it was so hard for me to um, really find a place until it all quieted, like you said. And then I was able to finally find a place and buy gender for myself. But I, I didn't, I couldn't do it until that call out culture stopped. And until I really had peace of mind to be by myself to go, where do I fit? What do I feel? And um, I think that the, I'm probably not the only one that experienced that. Mm-hmm. And I hope that in the ways that we've learned to take care of each other through this crisis, right, and the ways that we're going to continue to learn how to take care of each other through the crisis of through the race crisis that we're experiencing right now, right, right, hopefully that's going to really level up how we take care of each other across all of our differences, right? Um, You know, that's the way forward. How do we best take care of each other, you know? That's what we've always needed and and to, to hell with this critique, you know. Yes, we can always do better. Yes, we're always learning. Yes, we must always be listening and believing and working better, working harder to do better, a hundred percent. But to hell with with harming each other in order to get that to happen. Like we've got to take care of each other. Because if we're not going to take care of each other, who is? I mean, the society at, at large is not even going to. Um, you know, when I mentioned the the trans followers and fans that I have, they're, they're such a great community and they're so loving. And um, I talk to each of them like privately a lot. And, you know, they struggle and they're struggling a lot right now more than ever because of this isolation. Um, if you had any advice, you know, you're somebody that's, we're always on a gender journey, but as somebody who is farther down the road, do you have any advice for them? Because I feel like right now, a lot of the community is grasping at straws and they're looking at each other's journeys because they don't have anything else to hold on to right now. Yeah. I think if, I think the best thing that I learned and it, that I have learned and it took a long time to learn and it took multiple suicide attempts to learn, right? You are enough. You are good enough. You are good, right? It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter if, you know, any of the standards by which other people have measured you, your existence is valuable exactly as it is. If you don't do another thing ever in your life, if all you do is just breathe and eat and shit, you're enough. It's important that you're here. I happen to be someone who I really believe that you know, if I have any kind of higher power, religious, not, not religious, but like spiritual uh, belief, it's that we are consciousness experiencing itself. So we are part of the, of the higher power and the higher power needs to feel us in order to be whole. And so we need to know that we are whole, that we are good, that we are perfect exactly as we are with every flaw that we have right? And that's something, it sounds 
even as I say it, it's like I can hear everybody not believing me and saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done, right? You don't know what's been done to me. Mm. And I'm saying, yes. I mean, I don't know you personally, anybody who's listening, right? But like, I do know. And what I know through all of what I've learned is it's enough. And if you can just really get there, if you can just really be in yourself, in your moment, if you can say, I am enough, there is nothing wrong with me. There is nothing wrong with how I do life for as much as I can always be learning, right? The fact that I'm just doing that is enough. It's like, I think about the Audre Lorde quote. I'm going to, I'm not remembering it exactly. I don't have it right in front of me. So I'm, I know that I'm not saying it correctly, but the idea about, you know, taking care of your health and taking care of, of, you know, that is a radical act in itself that like a black queer woman was, you know, out there for her own health. That was the most radical act. Right. And yeah, so I know exactly what quote you're talking about. I've heard it several times. It's that act is is the form of self-care. Right. You know, people roll their eyes when they say self-care and they think about like white ladies drinking wine. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, it's you, you who are part of the revolution, you who must exist in order for there to be a revolution. You are the revolution exactly as you are. And it is revolutionary for you to take care of yourself and to love yourself and to love others as well as you possibly can. And to love yourself enough to, whether it's transition, be who you are, find your gender, find yourself, that is the radical act of self-love is being that and owning that finally. And that, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's enough. You don't have to be anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm someone who was motivated by achievement. And it was so funny when, when the nomination for this Emmy, which is like this like lifelong dream came true. I was literally the day before they told me the day before, because they had postponed the, um, the whole, the whole thing, right. They would postpone announcements and everything. And so I just forgot about it. I was like, I don't know if the world's going to be here tomorrow. Like, fuck the Emmy, (laughs) you know? And, uh, and the day before the producer was like, okay, they're announcing tomorrow. And I spent the rest of the day, like doing that head game with myself, you know, like, am I going to get it? Am I not going to get it? Am I, and I, and I was just like, why? Because, you know, I'm in COVID, right? And I'm like, what does this actually matter? Like, I have a roof. I have enough food. I have a loving partner. I'm not, I'm not in a domestic violence situation. The people around me love me and care for me exactly who I am. Like, I'm good. I'm really good. Everything is good exactly the way it is. And if I don't get it, then things will still be exactly the same good as they are right now. And if I do get it, then my path will branch in another direction right? Cool, interesting, fun, right? But it doesn't make me better. It just makes it different. And as soon as I felt that realization, I didn't care anymore. And the next day when they called, I was like, oh, neat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're like, wow, that's anticlimactic. I was like, well, I mean, it's wonderful. Thanks. It's and, great you know. Like, just your perspective has changed. And I think that it's lovely, actually. It is, you know, and I hope like that's if there's anything that I wish everybody could get because we already queer and trans people already are have like superpowers of self understanding that people who are just, you know, like the cis people and het people who are just like moving through their lives 
on autopilot, on culture's autopilot. Like they don't have a self-awareness and self-awareness is a superpower, right? So if I could just wish it into being, it would be the, the self-awareness of how fundamentally good and right we are and cannot be underdone, undone in us, you know? I love that. So great, yeah. Scott. So good. Well, I want to hit you with my uh, lightning round questions who that I, I it was definitely inspired by uh, James Lipton. And um, but uh, before that, tell people where they can find you online. And uh, I will include the links in your episode as well. Oh, thanks. Well, that's good because I have a really terrible online handle. It's <laughs> at Turner Schofield. <laughs> like you figure it out. <laughs> uh, if you just Google me, Scott Turner Schofield, you'll find me. I'm uh, most active on Instagram and also weirdly Facebook. Uh, um, I, I'm trying with Twitter, but it's okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> You sounded so defeated. You were like, I'm trying. It's okay. I'm good enough. I'm good enough on Twitter, okay? <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. All right. And, and well, thank you for, for looking me up and following if you want. Oh, yeah. I, I think that um, you are you're incredibly insightful and helpful and very inspirational. So I'm excited for everybody to know you. Um, but my important questions, yes. number one is, I want to know your favorite swear word. Fuck. Yes, that's like 90% of the answers. Do you have a favorite swear fuck phrase? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think it would have to be fuck me. <laughs> yes, that, that's a new one. I haven't heard that one yet. Nice job. I love that. Um, right now, I, I know there's a lot of self-care happening um, just on days that I have overworked or lots of anxiety. Is there like a book or is there music you're listening to or like your go-to movie that you've watched a hundred times that's helping you in those anxious moments right now? Um, well, you know, it's so interesting because all of the ones that I used to go to, like Harry Potter, sorry, nope. Yeah, uh, she's canceled, you know, yeah. Right, you know, it's just like, you, you just did, you could have just not said anything at all. You right? That's exactly and, what I said when I saw it. I was like, did you? Yeah. It added nothing to the conversation and you outed yourself as, you know, and I just hope she grows, you know, yeah. I'm, I, like, like I'll uncancel when she apologizes. It's cool. And I, and I look forward to it because those are the movies that I used to go to. Then I was, then I was all over 30 rock, which is deeply funny. And like, so it's like, it still fits for today, except literally every episode has an anti-trans joke in it. Really? Literally. It's like their favorite thing to do. And I just was like, you know, I just don't think I can do this anymore. And, you know, it was a different time, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, it was like a vendetta, you know? So I'm currently searching. Like, you know, I like The Office. It's very calming. For just like, I don't know what it is about that show, but it, it does make me just like chill out. Right. You know, and... I'm reading my way just through new things. And if something makes me feel bad or stressed out, I just stop. That's my, that's my self-care around media is like, as soon as I'm like, Oh, I stop and I go to the next thing and I don't dwell in what I'm feeling. I just stop and move forward. Good for you. That's amazing. Um, this question is has a little bit of an asterisk. I, I want to, two or three influential people who've helped you be who you are today. 
that are not white, cis, heterosexual men because they have enough. I love that. Um, I love that asterisk. And, you know, it's, um, it's not hard for me to talk about this. It's, it's, uh, it's funny that I don't get to talk about it enough. Um, so James Baldwin, reading his work from the earliest times, you know, is, you know, if you look at like Giovanni's room right now, right? If you, you know, any, any of the work that he's done and he was a playwright too. So I love, you know, I love reading his plays. Um, and I wish there was just like a whole collection of that work all in one place that I could go to. Um, that's, you know, that's like always the number one person, you know, uh, someone who I think I need to go back and look at as like a self-care person. Um, I used to read the book Love, Death, and the Changing of the Seasons by Marilyn Hacker. It was a National Book Award winning uh, book of sonnets about a lesbian relationship, mm. like the beginning to the end of a lesbian relationship, and every every single one a sonnet. Um, and it was like one of the most magnificent pieces of literature I encountered as a young person. Um, so I think I need to go back, even though I'm not a lesbian anymore, right? Mm. Like. I, I want to go back and take a look at that because it was just a marvelous accomplishment. Um, and then finally, like Margaret Atwood, anything by Margaret Atwood. And actually, the, the, I don't know how to pronounce this. I think it's the lacuna, right? Yeah, uh, sure. I don't know either. Um, you never, I never. Up your last name, so I mean, I'm not one to ask. <laughs> right. But like, never be mad at people. And now all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, was that Margaret Atwood or Barbara Kingsolver? All of a sudden, I'm like, which one? Who was it? Let me look. Actually, I think it might have been Kingsolver. But Margaret Atwood, first of all, period, right? Like, anything by her is amazing. Um, And then now I'm just going to look because I switched the two up. Um, Lacuna. And the other thing I want to say about mispronouncing things, it is Barbara Kingsolver. Sorry. the other thing I want to say about mispronouncing things is people mispronounce things because they learned how to say it by reading it. So never be mad at somebody for mispronouncing something. Mm. Right? Um, but The Lacuna by Barbara Kingsolver is one of the most magnificent novels. I'll read it again and again and again. It's about censorship. It's got Sylvia Rivera. It's got, not Sylvia Rivera, Diego Rivera. Uh, and um, it's, it, I mean, it's about communism. It's about queerness. It's about censorship and self-censorship. And it's just one of the most beautifully written books. Mm. I'll read it again and again. I love that. I love all those. You've given me things to pick up and read again and look at again. I love that. We've all got time. I'm reading like four books. Who am I? I have no idea. Good. Um, Good. So my last question is a question that was asked to me in an interview, and it caught me off guard to the point that I was in tears in the interview. And I always want to know people's answers to this. If you could have lunch with your younger self about how old would you be? What would you tell them? And more importantly, what would you eat with them? Mm. I added the eat part because food is just life to me. I love that. Oh, man. Well, I wish that I could get to my 15-year-old self. Mm. And I wish that I could take him out to coffee because I know he would have liked that. Mm. he would have felt very grown up (laughs) and um and i wish i could have just looked him in the eye and said you're right about everything that you know about who you are Mm. that's big that's big i've i've had that um a few times from people for pride that answer of don't let them make you feel like you're crazy yeah 
I, love I got it. to say it to a seven-year-old. I was invited to a school to give a talk, and they had a they had a kid who is trans as a seven-year-old, and we were like outside looking at the chickens and and you know walking around, you know, like little age-appropriate things that you do with little kids, you know, and. And before the end of our time together, I just had to like sit down and look him in the eye and say, I just want you to know that you're right about who you are. Ooh, that makes me emotional. That's just. No, it made me emotional. And then, but he was just like on a little cloud, you know what I mean? And I hope that didn't do any work that he needed to do, but that it saved him some trouble. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that there, I think having, you know, I think the quote has been floating around for years of be the person that you needed when you were younger. And I think that's probably what you did. I hope so. For that person. I love that. Scott, it's been such a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for joining us for Pride and for, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm definitely sure that the universe has crossed our paths for a reason. I, I film, I shoot in, in LA every other month when we're not in a quarantine and I have studios down there that I shoot. So my next goal is to get you to be a face in this project and to tell your, your mental health story. And we'll, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm glad for this connection. So thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing this work. Thank you for, you know, using this moment as fuel to do this project. And I can't wait for it to be out in the world. So thank you and thanks for making me a part of it. Thanks for joining us for this conversation as part of our Face to Faces series. We hope you'll join and support the Faces of Fortitude community on Instagram at Faces of Fortitude, on Facebook at Faces of Fortitude Portraits, and on Twitter as myself, Mary Angela Abeo. If you'd like to become a face in the project or join me in conversation on the podcast, or maybe you have an idea for a topic we should explore or a person we should interview, please contact us at booking at facesoffortitude.com. And until next time, please have extra patience and kindness for yourself and others.